0: Uh, well, as y'all know, this is a workshop, so we're in, uh, intended to have a lot of discussion. So I'm going to, going to be relying upon y'all a lot. And I want y'all to be able to, I mean, this is only going to be helpful insofar as we talk about gospel realities that meet us in our needs uh, and equip us to be better Bible teachers. And in that sense, all I mean is properly handling the word of truth. <laughs> and not just handling it in that moment, but actually, this is, this is a distinction being able to handle the word of truth in such a way that we're passing it down so we're building up the next generation that properly handles the word of truth. So there's a sense in which we can listen to a teacher, um, a Bible teacher, and say, wow, I've learned so much. But I think the best Bible teachers are those that you listen to and you say, I've learned so much. God can do that for me. God, God can teach me how to teach like that because it's the power of the gospel that changes lives. And so I think as as we learn about Bible teaching, we also want to be thinking about training while we teach, which is which is different. It's a, it's a different approach. Uh, okay. So what you what you have on your handouts is um, basically what's at stake in this discussion. You know, the, the title of this is teaching Scripture as part of God's grand story. What's at stake in this discussion when we neglect to recount the grand drama of redemptive history and instead teach moral principles unhinged? from their gospel narratives. We offer popcorn to hungry teenagers rather than the full-course meal their souls crave. And we fail to offer the substantive hope of the gospel which is not a principle but rather a person. And so when we teach the gospel, we're teaching Christ. And when we are teaching primarily moral principles then we're, we're really robbing our kids of the gospel. Well, I wanted to start just simply by asking y'all, particularly those of y'all who have been teaching regularly and have experienced uh, the the joys and the challenges of Bible teaching among youth, what are the common obstacles that y'all have faced um, in terms of teaching the scriptures in a youth ministry context?
1: In my church, it is, um, the kids have all grown up the church forever and have such little understanding of really any concepts. such to the point is like, can you remind me who, what Jesus did again? I mean, like, just very little. Well. So there's biblical
0: illiteracy. Yes. And And to what would you attribute that? Because you just said they grew up in the church. Yeah. Um, I just think there's been just hardly any really foundational teaching. Really? Like going, you? going back to the root of. Um, I think just like a full. There's just a lack of a full story. I,
1: mm-hmm. I, I think there's. That. I think. They're growing up in church, but it's a church that doesn't connect with them. So they're yeah. hearing the, the, the stories in church. They're, hear- they're not hearing. Personal. They're there and they're going through the air, but they're not taking them in because they don't connect with the way that they're being presented. Mm-hmm. Informal church, or not where
0: we are. So perhaps they feel as if they're being talked at, at rather than they, invited into the mysteries of the gospel.
1: That's being,
0: you know. mm-hmm. What other? That's, that's a great one. So biblical literacy, even if, even if you've grown up in the church. Now, this can even happen, of course, in churches that are solidly um, biblical in their teaching. Uh, just from internal you know, whether it's boredom with the gospel or whatever comes from kids. But often often this biblical literacy happens when we're not teaching the scripture in the way we ought. What other obstacles do y'all have y'all faced in your teaching of the Bible? Been
1: made personal to them. It's it's a collection of, of stories or truths or it, it's just never been I need Jesus. It's been everybody needs Jesus.
2: Not
1: mm-hmm. Lydia needs, it's just everyone.
0: And would you say—and the proper answer to this question is yes. Uh, would you say that that part of that, the reason that it hasn't been made personal, is that the teacher or preacher himself or herself has not felt the immediacy or the urgency of the gospel, such that that—that's the way it's presented.
1: i it hasn't been brave enough to say in front of a group of people decades younger than them, mm-hmm. "I need this too in mm-hmm. a very desperate way."
0: It's like looking at an artifact on a table and examining it, saying, oh, isn't this nice? You know, it's the difference between that and ingesting a pill, which saves you, right?
2: Kind of connected to that is making sure that we can preach a text and get really good heart application Mm -hmm. from it. That it's not just some ancient story about Ruth going to Bethlehem, but, like, in in our format, we have uh, little application discussion groups Mm -hmm. that, that follow the message in an evening and so like it seems like the crafting the application questions for discussion can in some weeks be harder than preparing the sermon to make sure that I get good hard application that's connecting and relevant and pointing people with the direction they need to be looking.
0: Absolutely because the problem of course isn't with this book. Because we're actually told this is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. So then we think, uh-oh, where's the problem? Hello, you're looking at her, right? And then, so sometimes we, we don't, and I find this in, in my own situation, I pour more energy into the exegesis and about 10 minutes into exegeting the audience. So I exegete the text. And so what I'm oftentimes merely doing is declaring something rather than applying it in a heart way. You know, or, or showing the immediacy, showing, showcasing um, the, the fact that this is Christ and we want you to have an encounter with Christ when we teach. Absolutely. Any other thoughts on the obstacles we face?
2: Well, I would like say for
1: my youth group, like, there's not a lack of biblical literacy out okay, there. Our kids have been taught very well and they very mm-hmm. much so know. Sunday so answers and beyond. Um, but I would say that this isn't a lot of like theories. Lack of fervor for the gospel. Mm-hmm. Like yes, I know the answers. I go to Westminster. I go to Westminster Presbyterian Church, and the school that's connected to it. Yeah,
2: I'm
0: and double I, Westminster. I, I've
1: been around this all my life, but yeah. does it impact my life? that I can answer the questions.
0: Yeah. And, and sometimes I think that comes, and I'm not locating everything, all the dilemmas on the teacher. I'm not doing that. But sometimes that comes when we have lost our sense of childlike delight over this. I mean, the, God is a remarkable storyteller. I mean, even just what we saw with David and Mephibosheth. I think that part of why that story happened is because God, in His sovereignty and in His kindness as a storyteller, has pictured grace in such a way that that shadows the grace where Christ is the substance. So we see the collision of Father and King in one Old Testament narrative. We see Christ. Oh, He's King, through whom, by whom, the whole universe created. Oh, and He's Son, and by His Father we saw that played out in shadow form in Second Samuel 9. And that's when we begin to get that sense of delight over our God as a storyteller and as we see the redemptive history in the very way it unfolds, progressively revealing the person of Christ and the way it unfolds in our life, Right, the way the progress of the gospel as land being on the move in our own heart, when we begin to take delight in that, put our finger on the pulse, man, that's dynamite. And so sometimes as Bible teachers, when there's, when there's a lack of joy, then, then it does translate into this is a culture that we adopt or principles that we take on. Well... By way of asking the questions about how do we teach a particular portion of scripture in light of the grand narrative, we're going to take a test case and then illustrate it with a rather controversial passage because why not be controversial? You know, when you have the opportunity, might as well be controversial. But the test case that I want to take is the idea of making moral judgments in a community. Because I I think this is one of the hottest topics of, of intergenerational conflict, making moral judgments In a community. So who's allowed to make moral judgments? What more moral judgments can be made? Who's not allowed to make moral judgments? You know, what can we say? Can we say that something's wrong? Are we, you know, those sorts of questions. So what I want to do to start out with is just simply ask you, the youth in your youth group, what's their general thinking about this idea of making moral judgments in community? So not just right and wrong in your own life, but looking and right and wrong in others. What do they generally say? Not any what, right or
1: wrong.
0: not any right or wrong. So, so they would say not only can we not make we we can't make moral judgments because there's no such thing as morality. So, in your case, that would be yep. No problem. Any other thoughts?
2: It's fair a uh, Fair. Yeah, it's not fair.
0: And who determines? And you're thinking who determines fair or what determines fair to them?
2: Yeah.
0: I, you're like they, I don't know. they, they know, determine they fair. Are, yeah.
2: They're the baseline. What's fair to them?
0: Yep. What else do y'all see?
2: I've even seen it go so far as to where, well, because they make a poor moral decision, like because they got drunk, therefore they're not a Christian. Okay, simply so simply because of a bad moral choice. So you see it
0: in the opposite sense, where there's there's a moralism such that your faith is equivalent with the decisions you make. Yeah. Okay. Whereas the other the other side is saying that the youth culture is saying, no, no, no. You're precluded from making any sort of statement, declarative statement about citizens.
3: I've seen a lot recently, even with my own friends, like at college. Yeah, right. Um, this idea. You have that, friends in college.
0: I know, right? It's weird. It's weird. Uh, but
3: this idea that they they can't make a moral judgment without standing on their own righteousness, and that means that 99% of the time you can't make a moral judgment because, I mean, you know, being fairly honest with them, so most of the time they realize, well know I've
0: been
3: there yep and I mean it, it provides for some something like grace you know I had a I remember walking into my dorm room uh, freshman year and there was a kid who's like in a pool of his own vomit and there were several guys helping him like get up get him in the shower and stuff and one of them you know was chuckling he's like you know that's we're all we've all been there mm-hmm. um, in one way or another mm-hmm. and there's that's why I'm helping him mm-hmm. even though it's 3 in the morning and I mm-hmm. test him but it also means that you can't ever step outside of your own brokenness to ever. say, like, well, this is wrong, because if I've done it, then it can't be wrong. Mm-hmm. It's, it's
0: humanitarian kindness. It's not the kindness of God. Right. Yes, and what are the proof texts? Because I would say that's probably the dominant youth culture, whereas that may be the one that you mentioned may more the religious youth culture. But even I think in the religious, I think this is the dominant one, where you're precluded from making moral statements. What are the proof texts, Right.
2: Judge not lest 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 you you be judged.
0: That is the proof text. Moral principle unhinged from gospel narrative used to preclude any sort of making moral judgment. Did you see how that's happened? Moral principle pulled out of the gospel, taken away from its narrative context, taken away and used to keep us from making... Now, the narrative, of course, is the false narrative. Jesus showed love by accepting everyone and withholding judgment from sinners. Jesus showed love by accepting everyone and withholding judgment from sinners. The underlying, underlying motivation, I think, is this. Now this is I'll be interested to hear what y'all think about this, but I think our youth culture has a minoritarian perspective in society. They're defensive. Their posture is of one as a minority, whereas the adults above them feel like the majority. they grew up when Christ, Christianity was a majority. So they take a majoritarian strategy. but the minoritarian strategy is self-conscious. Defensive, right? And so it's in our self-interest that we we don't compromise relationships by making declarative statements or by saying things that might be offensive. So it may appear like love, it, but it, it's a cheap imitative form of love. It's it's escape. It's self. It's cowardly, right? But it's we proof text it. Okay, let's go to the next generation. So so we've we've looked at the false narrative that is a predominant one in our youth. Context And then on your handout, what's, what's a competing and false narrative within our American Christian adult cult- culture? What are your thoughts on that? And of course, this is diverse. But you know, so we're, making, we're painting with broad brushstrokes. We're being stereotypical. I fully endorse stereotypes. <laughs> but uh, what, are, what are some competing and false narratives within our youth culture, our American adult culture, pertaining to making moral judgments? You
1: have it within you to make better decisions once you have consistently got to a point in your life where you make better decisions, that's the point at which you can tell those who are not as far as you to rise up to the level
0: which you've done. Absolutely, a ladder approach. Yeah. And so when you reach a certain rung, then you're able to peer out and make, make sort of say you're up at a thousand feet. Absolutely. Any other thoughts on that? I already mentioned the majoritarian perspective, and this, this may perhaps, because I think a lot of the parents of our youth are along those lines, but perhaps their parents take a more majoritarian stance when they would say, you know, sort of the, the narrative for them is, Jesus spoke more about sin and hell than anybody else and was not afraid of what people thought about him, so if we really are going to be like Jesus, then we will expose the sin in our culture just like Jesus overturning the, the money t- tables of the temple. That's sort of the idea. So to be like Jesus means to just full guns blazing, expose and overturn money tables. And, and you know, again, I think the parents of our youth may take a little bit of a different stance, but the underlying motivation here is the majoritarian position that perhaps is more aggressive and unwisely self-confident in the public sphere, um, is equating uh, gospel faith with social action or political action. Um, we and I think that again the underlying motivation is we want to win, we want to be right, <laughs> right? We, and we really want to win. Now, what are frequent proof texts for that kind of model? Or frequent thoughts? I mean, did you ever hear the uh, woman caught in adultery? So whereas the the minoritarians would say, the the youth culture would say, well, she was caught in adultery, and Jesus Jesus said, hey, you know, I mean, if you're gonna persecutor, than only the one who's righteous, they drop their stones, they leave. The majoritarian perspective says, yeah, but then Jesus said go and sin no more. Right? You see that the emphasis? It's it pulling from, it's not taking the whole narrative, it's pulling. Or, you must therefore be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Proof text, moral principle, pulled out, right? And it's pursuit, and I think this is our, our, the parents of our team, pursuit of excellence at all costs. Right? Pursue. We have to be right. We have to pursue excellence. Okay, to get to your point, we see competing narrative in the youth culture. We see competing narrative that's false in the adult culture. What about the competing narratives in our own minds, the tapes that are rolling? Well, I think sometimes we relegate ourselves to the sidelines from making moral statements because of all the failure. <laughs> who are we to talk about such and such? Right? Who, who are we to make any sort of Firm statements about truth when we live like such a sham, and that narrative of, oh, I'm a failure, therefore I cannot speak truth, plays in our mind. But the underlying motivation isn't true humility; it is cowardice, yeah. and and it's self-interest, right? Because we we'd, it, it it presents itself as love, but it's it's cheap, it's imitative Mark well, I
1: was just saying, you know, I, I also feel when I preach, I don't want to preach that because if I preach it, then I have to do it. And I know in my inner being it's just like I, I I can't really do my own what I'm calling people to do. In that sense of you know, something it calls us to a righteousness that's beyond ourselves, pointing us to grace. But you still I still keep up and up against that like, Oh man.
0: Absolutely. Or preaching it in front of your wife. I mean that's the worst part, right? When when you're married and she's sitting out there and you're preaching about you know, like again, take Mephibosheth, you're preaching about receiving the king's grace and preaching about sitting at the father's table, and she knows that you are riddled with insecurity and riddled with hypocrisy and that. How do you stand up and preach God's grace when you know? So I think that's a competing narrative in our mind that keeps us from pushing on in um, in this scene. Or, or we sometimes police the discussion. Do, do were y'all do y'all remember Timothy George's example of the the youth leader who put the big, uh, you know, well, and then a little bit later we find out he was just, you know, doused in sin in that area of his life. And well, I think sometimes those of us we either deal with our sin by feeling an acute sense of failure, failure, or we police the discussion. You know, we're we're like out our own angst by hitting certain social or moral issues really because it's it's self-condemnation expressed in condemning others. And So I think that those are um, underlying motivations. Well here's what we're going to do. We've we've kind of scoured the competing narratives. What we want to do is take a test case and here's our test case. We're going to turn to 1st Corinthians 5 which is a rather dicey text and let me say from the outside what we're not doing is teaching 1 Corinthians 5 right now. That's not our aim. Our aim is actually to look at how does Paul address a moral issue by way of drawing from gospel narrative. So let me say that again because that's important. We're not primarily teaching what 1 Corinthians 5 says. We're looking at Paul's method. How does he address a cultural issue? Because his letter to 1 Corinthians, it's occasional. It comes on account of... Uh, s- several crises, right? But this chapter in particular is the crisis—the crisis of rampant sexual immorality in the church. And he address, addresses sexual immorality with bold truth, but he does it in such a way as to pull from the roots of the, the narratives of grace. And so, really, we're, we're simply looking at his method. So, turn to First Corinthians five, and I will read that for us. We'll draw a few conclusions. Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though I am absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. I think the idea here is merely you are to excommunicate him from the fold so that he doesn't operate under the illusion that he's one of Christ's so that that way he can realize, oh, I'm not a Christian, and then be saved and brought back into the fold. Verse 6, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. <laughs> but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty with sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, or drunker or a swindler not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Dang, Gina! If we were teaching this text to our youth, now first of all, we often avoid texts like this entirely, but if we were teaching this text to our youth, Talk to me about what would be going on in their minds. What, what, what references or what words or statements would be really confusing or have red flags go? Now just look at 1 Corinthians 5. Tell me, what would be some obstacles if you were teaching this text?
1: Define sexual
0: immorality. Yep, define sexual immorality, right? And part of that is understandable. And part of that is because our youth culture is obsessed with gray. Now it's not black and white, it's gray. How far is too far? How far is too far? As if that's the question, right? Rather than how can I honor my God actively? Um, But uh, any other thoughts? That's a great question. So seeing the grace. So instantly we have a message about, because again, and, and let me say this caveat. Sometimes groups that emphasize grace miss out on the fullness of grace because they don't also go the next step seeing how grace changes us and makes us like Christ. And so sometimes when we are grace-driven teachers, we emphasize the position Christ has won as we should. We neglect the mission which, to which Christ has called us, which is not just an external mission of winning folks to the kingdom. It's also the internal holistic mission of knowing Christ and making him known and becoming one with him and like him. So sometimes we avoid texts like this because they seem so legalistic. Uh, any other thoughts on, on what sorts of things in 1 Corinthians 5, if you're teaching to a high school group, for example, what sorts of things would uh, be confusing to them?
2: in spirit and passing judgment on them in the name of the Lord Jesus. Yeah.
0: how can somebody pass judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus? I thought the Lord Jesus came to love us. absolutely Any other thoughts? just pop them like popcorn. What about the leaven business? What in the world is that? right? I mean don't you think you'd be like well leaven, 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 unleaven, leaven, leaven. leaven, leaven shut up already, right? I mean I think leaven is, is confusing. What other thoughts? I mean, not to associate with sexually immoral. I thought Jesus ate with sinners. Yeah,
1: to get rid of them altogether. together. I mean, we're supposed to be allowing everyone in. Yeah. I just know if I was like, I just remember when I was in high school, I read this over me, I'd be like, oh, I hope nobody knows about me. over keep like, me out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You yeah, it's just like, ah, that mask goes up. You know, someone, else, you just can't really let them know you then.
0: Absolutely. You've got to do the image thing. You know, you're forced into image consciousness because if, if they found out, you'd be kicked out, kicked out of the group. Absolutely.
1: Some of more question. Why would I join the group if I received, or I seemingly received more grace outside the group? Yeah, more acceptance. Yeah. Grace, yeah. by yeah. by yeah. grace, meaning yeah. acceptance. Yeah, Yeah. if I can get away with
0: these things without being part of the group. Absolutely. I
1: don't think I would get into discussion from my group. Really? I mean, kind of what, what y'all said, I'm guilty of this if I just sit like this the whole time and mm-hmm. don't make eye contact
0: and don't engage engage in the conversation of the
1: dialogue then I'd be asking questions and getting nothing get to, unless they were
0: really angry and yeah and yeah. then they'd express their outrage yeah. outrage is the name of the game with our youth culture right. they are good at outrage well let's let's push ahead and let's just simply narrow it down and ask this question how does Paul address a rampant immorality By using, by relying upon God's big story and as Bible teachers, so God's big story of redemption, as Bible teachers, how can we approach a text like this, notice what Paul has done, and then rely on the gospel narrative as we teach? Well, there are three things I want to point out. Some three Old Testament references. First is this idea of leaven in verse 6 and 7. This idea of leaven. It it, it is intentionally recalling the, the feast of unleavened bread. We're going to press into that a little bit the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was organically linked with the Feast of Passover. You see this, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And it's upon this basis, the link of Passover with Unleavened Bread, that Paul exhorts the church to be transformed and to live out their identities as those for whom Christ has been sacrificed. It's on that linking that he exhorts. So we want to press into that. And then, lastly, in verse 13 uh, he quotes, purge the evil person from among you. Now, this, this phrase of purgation is, is in the Old Covenant in multiple places, but you see in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And so we want to look at why does he quote it there and, and what is he saying. So let's, let's press in a bit to this. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, very simply, and again, we're, we're going very simple here, but Feast of Unleavened Bread, very simply, you were to remove all leaven from your house now leaven is basically just yeast right and the idea is if you get now i don't bake um which will never change (laughs) sorry uh grace doesn't transform me in that way uh it's not going to make me a baker but i don't bake but apparently you put a little bit of yeast right and it goes everywhere right a little bit of yeast makes the bread rise like crazy so the idea here just logically is you get a little bit of leaven and the whole lump is leavened well God, in the Old Covenant, much of what he does in the Old Covenant is he gives us symbols so that when we meet Christ, we recognize that's the substance of that symbol. So this symbol, the festival of unleavened bread, we enacted it dramatically year after year so that when the substance came, we'd understand his person and his work. So the unleavened bread, you would remove all leaven from your home. You'd sweep it out of your house. There would be no leaven anywhere. So the idea quickly became consecration and purity so that you had to be completely rid of sinfulness, of the old leaven. And it was connected integrally with the feast of the Passover. Now the Passover we're more aware with, we're more aware of, not aware with something, come on Wilson, we're more aware of the Passover, right? Where the, the firstborn son was in Egypt and all the firstborn sons, not just the Egyptian firstborn sons, Every firstborn son, including the Israelites, were under condemnation. And the only way that the family was delivered from God's judgment was by the substitute of the lamb. So it's not as if judgment fell upon the Egyptian firstborn sons. Judgment fell upon everyone. And the lamb was the means by which the Israelite families, those who placed their faith in God's word and so enacted the sacrifice he called them to act, even though they're thinking, why am I painting blood on the
3: door? I don't get it.
0: How does this save me? But they're following God's word. They're enacting the sacrifice. Then they're, they're saved. They're delivered from his wrath. And on that basis, they're in, on the basis of their deliverance, they are to remove all leaven from their home. Well, again, we think, what in the world? Here's what Paul is saying. Christ is the substance to which the Passover lamb pointed. Judgment universal. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Christ, those who are covered in the blood of Christ, are free from judgment entirely. You've been rescued. But you haven't just been rescued. You've been rescued for relationship. You've been rescued... For consecration. You've been rescued for purity. You've been rescued for wholeness. And so, on the basis of what God has done in the Passover, we we enact the, the festival of unleavened bread where we show there are implications of what Christ has done. You're not you don't receive the Passover lamb by way of observing the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread on account of the Feast of the Passover. And so Paul is drawing from this this rootedness of God's redemptive narrative to show the truth that because of what Christ has firmly secured, of course we live lives that are consecrated, because we're rescued for a relationship. And so that's why he says, let's let's read again seven um, or six through eight. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So here are the implications. How does Paul's theological rootedness in this narrative shed light on his approach to this scenario? First is this. The message of the gospel youth culture, is not that God withholds judgment. It's that he pours out the judgment we deserve upon Christ. It's not that God withholds judgment. That is not the gospel. It's that he pours out the judgment we deserve upon the Passover lamb. The essential implication of the gospel, essential implication of the gospel, is that through grace's transformative power, we live in purity and wholeness. Now, we know it's processual. We know it's gradual. We know we are being sanctified, being consecrated, although we are firmly consecrated in Christ. But we are in the process of transformation as we seek to remove the leaven, the old leaven, that sinful nature. That is, as Dr. Orland has emphasized the flesh, or namely, as Paul has emphasized, right? the flesh. We are at war with the spirit and the flesh that we remove the leaven in light of what has been accomplished. Okay, So in light of this anchor, so Paul doesn't merely uh, preach principles, but he anchors it in the narrative. In light of that, uh, what are some gospel ethics that Paul describes? First of all, how in the world would we expect someone who does not have the spirit of God living inside them to live in purity? How in the world? Of course, we don't judge outsiders. If we judge outsiders, it's as if we think that we've accomplished our ability to live in purity on our own. I mean, if you really believe in the radical nature of grace, of course you don't judge an outsider. Are you an idiot? Do you think that you accomplish this on your own? Right? It's the very Spirit of God who vivifies us, good word, who enlivens us, right? So that we're not just, we don't just receive life by the Spirit, but we walk by the Spirit. Life, walk, spirit. And of course, we participate with him with faith and in sanctification, not in justification, but in sanctification, also our obedience. But of course, we don't judge outsiders. So the youth are onto something, but they need to be honed. They need to be taught how they're putting their finger on the pulse, of, but, but they're not quite there. <laughs> so their impulse is to say, no, we don't judge outsiders. But why don't we judge outsiders? That, that is, is what they're missing. Secondly, we are not to cozy up to sin in our churches, right? I mean, if we bear the name of brother and yet openly and habitually walk in sin and, and we're not correcting one another and exhorting one another, then a little leaven spreads like gangrene. A little leaven spreads like gangrene. Now, the point of Paul's passage is not that we all put on a police badge, but that we take seriously God when, he, when we're united with Christ, we're united with one another, And we ought not be bedfellows of one another's unrepentant sin. We ought not be bedfellows of one another's unrepentant sin. And and ultimately, though this is received, first of all, as a hard word, think about the promise of that word. We are that linked to one another, and God desires holiness for us to that extent. There's a promise with that principle. And so the New Covenant Church is to be a disciplined and loving community. And while the New Covenant Church is to be a witness in the midst of a broken and sinful world, she is not responsible for judging those outside the world. And so we see how Paul's very approach by drawing on gospel narrative when he speaks of moral principle, Paul's very approach cuts against the minoritarian perspective of, you know, of the youth culture. And it cuts against the majoritarian perspective of the adult culture. And instead, it presents the gospel perspective, which, which is the indicative of what God has firmly accomplished and the imperative of, on account of this, how now do we live? <laughs> but it's both indicative and imperative. When we are grace-driven teachers, we don't only emphasize the indicative. We prioritize the indicative. But we show that the imperative is a natural, uh, essential implication. Well, lastly, before I open the floor, well, actually, let me open the floor for questions on that matter before I go into some more technical things. What sorts of things are swirling in your mind as you think about this, or, or what sorts of dilemmas do you anticipate thinking, well, this wouldn't work in my youth group for X and Y reason? Yep.
2: A huge one for me is time. <laughs>
0: I've,
2: I've had the grace of God to have been working with this kind of style and understanding because of my pastor handing it down to me man, to try to spit it in 20, 25 minutes is really rough. And then I've been trying to throw in more of a question and answer style, too, trying to not just talk at them. Did
0: mm-hmm.
2: you open the floor for you... Crazy, man. You get the nice.
0: weirdest stuff. And you've got to, like, affirm the answer, but think, God, give me wisdom. How do I affirm this person and yet totally deny what they have just said? Because that, that is actually I've, the opposite. i pretty good at that. <laughs> <laughs> but it
2: takes, you know, five minutes. But then something like this would take me, it turned into a four-part series. Mm-hmm. And by which, you know, that's so transient among the youth that you weren't here for the first one, but we're finishing up mm-hmm. tonight what I started a month ago. So that's just, it's, it's hard.
0: Yeah. What are y'all? Any responses to that by way of not just agreement, although I'm sure we all agree, but by way of problem solving? How how have y'all successfully dealt with the issue of teaching a complex passage? That actually, I mean, do you see how? Although we're not teaching this today, do you see how this actually, this passage actually sheds a lot of wisdom on how we, as a church, engage with the culture and engage with our community as a a church? You know, but how do we teach something like this? What are y'all's thoughts on that?
1: Mm-hmm. Your kids write papers on Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. They do calculus. This is not beyond their comprehending. It's just out of their comfort zone. Mm-hmm. I think also the realization that we didn't learn what we learned in one, you know, mm-hmm. thirty-minute mm-hmm. Sunday school. That I mean, our Lord is a patient Lord. Mm-hmm. That's he a great given point. Gives us a lifetime, however long that lifetime is, and, and so it gives us the freedom to say, the Lord's given them this time to learn. I don't have to feel like I have to do in sixty minutes what the Lord's going to take a lifetime to accomplish. Absolutely. In this person. And so it just removes a lot of
0: the pressure. And trusting that He will accomplish it. If we're in Christ, He will accomplish it. And I, I think it's something that I run into as a Bible teacher is I try to exhaust every so every exegetical gem. Right. Man, I want I want it all out there because if I'm listening just with my my preferences. I want someone to teach like that. Now, most people don't. Most people want more application and want more. I'm like, give me the gems, baby. Hit me up. You know, hit me with every... And this person links to this person. You know, that's, that's the way I'm oriented. But I think we, we can't do that in, in, in youth ministry, not because they're not smart enough, but because we want to train how, how to even read the scriptures so that we're not just telling them the gems because then what do they think? In order to get the gems, I've got to listen to Mark. In order to get the... We're not helping them read it themselves. So I think you're right to be thinking creatively about the very form. And I think that involves not just general pedagogy. I think it also involves your particular teens. So we didn't answer anything that you've said, except for you have a host of friends who feel similarly. But I do think that the strong anchor is God is the ultimate teacher, as we know. And God is successful in his teaching. (laughs) But I I do think it's important for us, particularly by way of this narrative business, to get a strategy. Are we just shooting from the hip and teaching, this month I'm going to teach parables, next month I'm going to teach, or do we actually have a strategy for catechism oriented around the word, so that over time, if they're there, sixth grade to senior year, and they're there, now I know some are transient, but if they're there, can they leave and have some sort of grasp of the whole big story of redemption and the gospel narrative. And so do we have that kind of strategy in our Bible teaching? And I think usually we don't. Usually the best we do is to get a strategy for summer Bible study, like a season. What about what about a six-year plan? You know? Take the Bible that seriously that this is where the Spirit of God is living and active and changes lives and where we encounter the King. And if we take it that seriously... We'll develop a strategy, and then we can lean back into that strategy and not feel like we've got to exhaust First Corinthians 5 in one talk. Um, is that the next workshop then? Yeah, yes. <laughs> Go to March. <laughs> actually, bump set. Spike it, baby. Take it down. Well, let me just really simply, this is just simple, but I was thinking through, um, you know, so much of this we do intuitively, and I, I realize that, but I do want to, I was thinking through, okay, how do you actually, if, if we were to teach First Corinthians 5, Um, how would we approach it by emphasizing the gospel indicative of the passage, which lends to the gospel imperative? And and just simply, first, pray for wisdom and clarity. Pray that God's word would be living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword in your heart. Step one, and I mean it. (laughs) Step two, catalog all the background elements in the passage which contribute to the argument being made. So just catalog the different elements. Just get a piece of paper and, and say, okay, what is Paul arguing? What's this? And Just catalog it. Put them on the paper. Then identify the location of these elements within God's big story. So look, look at your um, handout. And I, I have a simple chart that I find to be rather helpful. I'm sure 10 years from now, I'll find out some way that it's like acutely deficient but at this point I'm, I'm happy with it and uh, so basically y- you can dig into that a little bit yourself but it, it basically is a simple way for me when I teach a passage to show hey y'all this is where we are we're talking about David and Mephibosheth so we're right here the gospel is unfolding we haven't fully climaxed into Christ we haven't but then when we talk about Say, for example, with David and Mephibosheth, and we say, oh, we um, feast at the Lord's table in communion. We can talk about that's when Christ came and fully disclosed the gospel. But one day, when Christ comes again, then we feast at the marriage so, You see what I mean? So just a simple chart that my audience generally tends to know because I, I do it a lot. Okay? So, so they know it, so I can quickly do on the board like that and show how, wow, God is a great storyteller. Wow, look at the ways this unfolds and the shadows and the substance. and the. But just over time, building a chart, I think, is helpful or giving them a sense of the whole because then you see the little girl and some of you guys, sorry, this is a sexist. Not a sexy workshop, but a sexist. The little girl, it actually shows, hey, that's where we are. And how does that help me? Because I'm not yet in the new heavens and new earth. So I'm still in the midst of brokenness. But the end is set. I'm on my way. <laughs> and I'm embedded not in the me narrative, but I'm embedded in the gospel narrative. This is my story, and I'm a part of it. And so little things like that help. Okay, so we identify. Then we determine the main text, the foreground text intention by drawing from this Old Covenant backdrop. So we what was Paul's intention in talking about leavened bread and Passover? Oh, it's because... Christ has accomplished something, so now we live in light of it. Oh, that's his simple intention. Okay, we got that. Check. Uh, Consider the significance, if any, of the text drawing from these particular moments in God's big story. So how do these narratives or references work together to present a full-orbed truth such that a mere propositional statement would not accomplish the same thing? So, for example, when he lastly says, Purge the evil person from among your midst." Well, in the Old Covenant theocracy, where God was physically present in the temple and in the tabernacle, there were Old Covenant ethics where you would literally purge a person from your community. Now, what Paul is saying here is actually we don't do that anymore. By quoting this text in this way, I'm saying this is how we purge. We don't enact physical violence. We don't enact... We purge this way. So that's why he's drawing from that old covenant context to show there's been a covenantal change. There's a new economy here. It's the, covenant, uh, the new covenant economy. So that's very helpful for helping our teens understand when they read Deuteronomy, that's not the way we operate, right? It doesn't mean this isn't important because Paul actually validates its significance by quoting it. But it's changed. Why? Because Christ has borne the evil. He has gone outside the gate and endured our reproach. So it's different. Okay? All right. Uh, come on, Wilson. Get it going. All right. Sixthly, enjoy the beauty of God's unfolding drama and worship Christ on account of the particular elements you are seeing tie together in God's big story. Worship. Fall on your face. Pay homage to your king. Worship him for the beauty of it. Then you assimilate. So you read the passage again. You read 1 Corinthians 5 again, and you begin to tie together the pieces that you've cataloged and identified, and you assimilate the information, try to get what is the driving point of Paul. Then you simplify. Because if, I mean, if you show all these complexities, Kyle, I mean, for crying out loud, you can't do that in 20 minutes. Right? You can't do that in 20 minutes. So you simplify. And to what end do we simplify? Not to dumb down. We simplify to intensify. Right? We actually simplify so the spirit intensifies and preaches to the heart, proclaims to the heart. But I think you're right. So many of us simplify because we believe the lie that teenagers can't handle the truth or we're lazy or, you know, whatever. But we're actually simplifying to intensify. Um, great. So that our, our talk doesn't become the Old Testament background of 1 Corinthians 5. I mean, shoot me in the head unless you're me because I actually would like that. But, you know, the Old Testament background of 1 Corinthians 5. Instead, it's, rescued for relationship in 1 Corinthians 5. You know? But you've, you've done your homework by digging into the narrative. You've done your homework by seeing how Paul sees this issue in light of the whole. And then you apply the truths to which the foreground text, 1 Corinthians 5, you apply those truths in your own life. You start there. Right? What has God challenged in your own life and ministry as you've studied this text? Is there anything of which you need to repent? in light of the conviction of the Spirit through this text? Has your study of this text called you to greater faith in Christ in a certain area of your life? And then finally, you apply the truths to which the foreground text attests in the lives of your audience. So you exegete your audience. Why do they need to hear this word? And that's where, you know, we've, we've talked about how teachers, some of our kids don't feel the immediacy. It's because we don't ask this question. What truth does this word proclaim that my audience desperately needs? If we believe this is living and after, if we believe God gives us truth because we need it, because we have to bask in it, we have to delight in it, what is the truth? What's the driving point? What's the truth here that they need to inspire them to walk in faith and obedience? And that is how we apply the text. And then I would say, that was my last point, but I'll add another one. Enjoy. Take delight. I mean, can you believe it? That God entrusts the family business to the likes of us. I mean, honestly, you know, I mean that's that's so much of the son father language in um, the scriptures because, and that's why it's not actually sexist to say sonship, because in that day, if you're the son, you do what your father did in business. So to be the son of God is something that daughter of God linguistically doesn't capture. Now, I'm not saying in any sense that it's not equal. Sons and daughters are equal, but in that day, vocation was connected with the language of sonship. We are sons of God. We are in the family business, and we're not the deadbeat brother, you know, whose business has been entrusted to him, but, you know, it's all going to go downhill. God accomplishes it through us. And so, this beautiful, remarkable privilege of proclaiming the gospel to teenagers. And the, the gospel, in its implications, this is something for which we ought to be humbled and take delight in, uh, and really enjoy. So that, that's that's my simple commendation to you. Are there any questions? We have about f- five minutes to wrap things wrap things up. Are there any questions based on what you've heard about how to teach um, certain passages in light of the big story, Mark?
1: would you say are some of the most helpful resources and then you have these on the back but you know obviously this is saying that we need
0: to know the story yeah yeah let me highlight that's that I'm glad you said it let me highlight on the back of your handout I have put um, several references for a a simple discipline called biblical theology which has uh, many definitions to it but A simple definition is simply paying attention to the way that God intentionally tells the story throughout Scripture. So seeing God's big story, seeing themes that develop in a certain way, right? Um, So that, like, for example, we see, oh, the Garden of Eden was like a paradise place where God met with His people. Oh, then there was the tabernacle. So God met with His people in the tabernacle. Then the temple. Then Christ came and He was the meeting point of heaven and earth. And now we're the temple and we're looking forward to that great place where there'll be no temple. Simple like that, right? So just seeing how the big story ties together. These group um, group study, D.A. Carson, the God who was there, um, is a good one. Von Roberts is really simple and helpful, and I think you could go through that um, with your teenagers. Yeah, with youth, really, you did the Von Roberts? Yeah, pre- we
2: did ten weeks.
0: Terrific. And, it's, and and he has questions, and and it's simple. It's not so he takes the approach of the kingdom, and so you begin to see it, it's great. Do this now. Now let me say this, uh, as somebody who who believes that expositional teaching is foremost. Um, I think the the key is that we stay in the scriptures. But there are times when we need to take a break from expositional teaching, just straight up going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and buttress our knowledge of the big story. So taking a 10-week break and doing a Vaughn Roberts book will not only equip you, but again, you're training. Don't only equip yourself to know the big story. Train. So, yeah, that's, that's great. And then the other books are a little bit um, more for you. Although Goldsworthy, uh, you could go through with um, your teenagers as well. But on another note, I think that, like, I, I recently um, have been using a commentary by Phil Riken on um, Galatians. And they're sermons. And so, or they're not sermons. But that you can tell he preached it. So it's helpful Uh, in ministry to get a commentary like that because it's for expositors and he also has a grasp on God's big story so that it comes in. Now he's not the only one but I would look for commentaries that are intentionally geared for expositors. Um, So that's a simple resource in terms of how do you teach a particular text but in general these are the books that I think would really help equip all of us understand God's big story. It's a crying need. We have false narratives all around us, competing narratives all around us, and the only narrative that gives our souls its full meaning is the narrative of Jesus Christ and the gospel in which we're embedded. So we might as well revel in it and delight. (laughs) All right, guys.